I think it's been a month since I've been here. And I'm thrilled to be back. I really am. And I always like the, to the first couple of minutes while people are still signing in. I like to be looking about who's here, who's here, who I don't know, who I've never seen. How about if you've never, if we have never met face to face, so to speak, show me your hand. Oh, that's great. Where are you, Claudia? Make yourself live and tell me where you are. Hi, good morning. Uh, good afternoon here. I'm in Vermont. Oh, that's great. Wonderful uh, to meet you. I'm glad to meet you. Who else put up their hand? Oh, Lauren. Hi, I am actually in West Marin, Sonoma, and I just got back from Spirit Rock and um, for the weekend, for the Labor Day retreat. And I've been... Um, hesitant about doing zoom um meditation but everybody assures me that they love it and that this is a wonderful sit so i i'm here and i'm hoping to incorporate it into my routine i'm so pleased was james barris one of the teachers yeah and howie yeah that's wonderful because Larry. one of the things every time Carlita says Sylvia is you know done this for a million years, James has done the uh, the uh, the Labor Day retreat that's for a million years. That's what he said. Yeah, <laughs> it was it was wonderful. I'm still basking in the glow. So. <laughs> I'm so glad that you were there and that you're back to share it with us. Next, yeah. where in the world are you? So not where it appears. So I'm in Toronto, actually, which is in the middle of a heat wave, but no palm trees. And, <laughs> and but I'm very happy to be here and very, you know, very glad, um, you know, that you're here and everyone else is here. Well, thank you very much for telling us. Anybody, anybody's in an exotic place like in Tahiti or somewhere really amazing to be at. I love that. Uh, in the beginning, we always used to say, I can't wait till we're back in person. And it's been so long that we could be, you know, a, a lot, certainly not for people driving out there and coming back. I think this is going to be it for a while. And I, and I completely got over the not there in person. I've been watching how the mind compensates and goes from the story. Oh, I'm so sorry not to be there in actual physical immediacy with all those people to telling itself the story. This is great. People can come from all over the world and people come from Australia and someplace else and something else. And think of all the um, the the um, uh, saving the environment we do by not traveling so much on the highway. It's good for the planet that we're all at home. And I'm interested in how the mind when it gets to see, if I think story A, it makes me unhappy, and story B makes me happy, I'll pick, after a while, I'll pick story B, because it makes me happy. And I want to talk about that today, how what we bring our mind to is responsible. There's a line in the movie Kundun, which is uh, more or less a, a biography of uh, Tenzin Gatsu, the, the, the current... Uh, Dalai Lama and uh, the uh, child who plays the young Dalai Lama in that representation is being quizzed by his teachers about recite the Four Noble Truths. And he says something passable for the First Noble Truth. 
And the second he says something that those teachers say, no, that's not right. That's got too much ego in it. Um, it was, was some sort of pontificating, this is it. And he thinks about it. And then he says, I am the cause of most of my suffering because of the habits of my own mind. And I remember it's the best line in the whole movie, I think, because I think it's true. We all are. And I think it's particular. Who knows if the actual Dalai Lama actually said that when he was eight or nine years old. But I'm thinking I know people who are 80 years old or 50 years old or whatever years old and don't know that we don't create pain in our mind. Pain happens to us in our life. We are disappointed or we don't get what we want or people we know get sick or die or whatever. We have plenty of pain. But the suffering in the mind is the mind that is unable to adjust itself to what happened. And that's the suffering that we cause for ourselves. It shouldn't have happened. It's my bad luck or whatever. It happens to everybody. It's a contingency, this life. And really, anyway, that's a side thing I was going to say. It's always amazing to say who's still here. There are um, people who have the habit of getting up in the morning and saying uh, morning prayers. Thank you, I got up. <laughs> Sounds a little macabre, but really it could have been otherwise. Um, anyway, I'm very glad to be back. And uh, uh, we're going to sit for a minute. Maybe we should just sit for a minute. I want to tell you what we're going to talk about uh, this morning. I've been eager to talk to you about... Uh, You'll be surprised, maybe. I'll be eager to talk to you about Barbie. Have you seen the movie? How many people saw the movie Barbie? A lot? A little? How many people didn't see the movie Barbie? A lot? A little? How many people didn't put up their hands? It's only two answers. <laughs> anyway, uh, I saw Barbie, and I was really surprised by it, and I want to talk about it, because it revolves around... What's the difference between being in the real world and a Barbie world? And it it revolves around having the sense of consciousness of what's happening. Anyway, I thought I, I, I'm very much um, in favor of the kind of uh, arriving meditation that we've gotten into the habit of doing here. So that Heidi does all the time. And I sometimes do, and now I'm trying to remember to do it all the time. So just to be here, as I was putting together my notes for this morning, I thought maybe we're going to come back to being able to say that the whole of uh, Ram Dass's teaching for the years that he was alive was around his book that called Be Here Now. And a lot of people said, where else could you be but here? And I think the whole of what we're talking about with developing mindfulness is the quality of being here with our attention and rather than in the past or in the future. So let's just use these few minutes to be here in our body and in our awareness. So sit in a way that's comfortable for you. And close your eyes to begin with. 
And probably if you just arrived a minute ago, you just settled down and um, turned the kettle off or closed the door so you can't hear the refrigerator in the next room or done whatever you've done. And you're just settling down into your body. If you've been here a while, maybe it's settled down. In either event, if you close your eyes, the rest of your senses are still operating. And what I always do when I sit down and close my eyes is I just sit there and use my sense of hearing, first of all, to listen to sounds around me. If you're sitting outside, uh, the uh, breeze makes a sound if it's blowing the trees. Or birds are making sounds. And indoors there are refrigerators whirring or clothes dryers making sounds. Listen. And if it's completely quiet where you are, my teacher Ajahn Sumedha would have said, listen to the sound of silence. So I'll be quiet for a minute. And listen as keenly as you can. My own experience usually is that if I listen, if it's silent, and if there's some small but not distracting sound, like the refrigerator humming away or the clothes dryer thumping away, if it's not obtrusive, The mind blots it out a little bit, doesn't pay attention to it, or it uses it to locate yourself in time and space. Because when I finish listening for a minute, I find that my body is registering the fact that it's filling with air and then expelling the air. That my corporeal body is expandable, and it expands and then relaxes back 
with each in-breath and out-breath. And then I indeed do not need to remember to take a breath. Nothing remembers to take a breath. It happens all by itself. As long as we're alive. So just a sense, okay, I'm alive. And the in and the out breath physical changes that your shoulders raise up a little bit and your rib cage opens and comes back down a little bit. A reminder that that constant cycle of change in and out and in and out is part of what's phenomenally happening with this body from the moment that we are born until the end of our lives. Breathing is uh, an involuntary part of being alive. It marks the fact that we're alive. We don't notice the breathing until we're, so to speak, out of breath or our breathing is somehow obstructed. So that there's a calming effect of knowing that breathing is happening. And that you're alive in this moment. And feel the whole perimeter of your body, the part of it that marks the end of your corporeal body. I'm, I'm wearing a turtleneck shirt, so my body is the same warm all over. But the part of my body, like my face and my lower arms that are don't have clothing on them, are a little bit cooler than the rest of my body. And the window is open next to me. And there's a little bit of a cooler breeze. Wherever you are, in or out, let the perimeter of your body be known to you by its difference and temperature from the rest of your body. And because those are all things that are actually happening to this breathing body now, including the mind registering this is pleasant or this is unpleasant or I really need to close the door so I don't hear that sound. But the awareness of unpleasant, this is pleasant, this is unpleasant, 
is also part of locating this divine body organism in this place and time and space. So using those indicators of the body, of the flesh, of the ears, of the structure of your skeletal body, and of the, and of the sense of being content with it. Maybe it's a little unpleasant, maybe it's a little pleasant, but there's a, a measurer of contentment that measures every minute. Notice that. It's not a thought, it's an awareness in the body. And I'll be quiet for a minute. You might, if you want to, say to yourself, I am alive. Or even better, aliveness is here. Aliveness is happening. And here we are. I'm kind of amused with myself because I remember saying probably innumerable time, I never like to ring a bell at the end of a, a session of meditation or contemplation. And I just did. And in the days that I said I don't like to ring a bell, I always said I that makes it seem to me that Ringing a bell means, okay, we were paying attention and now we're over with paying attention. Now you can have sloppy thinking. Uh, like, like there isn't a moment, and I, and I teach all the time about there isn't a moment in which we shouldn't be paying attention. Should be no difference between paying attention in a contemplative state and paying attention in an ordinary, middle of an ordinary day. But, uh, <laughs> Things change. 
somebody gave me a nice belt. <laughs> Since I have it, I like to use it. So now I make a whole other story about it. What did you know? Does anybody want to say anything about what they noticed between with that specific meditation, checking in the senses, in the ears and in the skin and the sense of the body up and down and using different sense doors to locate to locate attention in this present moment. Anybody notice anything about that? Why were we doing that? Oh, Carolyn, what were you going to say? Hi, Sylvia. I noticed what I notice most of the time when I go into meditation with you or some of the other teachers, that it's no, in the best of ways, it's no different different from sitting in a meditation hall. Mm -hmm. 2015, I was doing some online chanting courses with a fellow named Russell Paul, and the first time we meditated online, I thought, this is going to be useless. Mm -hmm. I was sitting there, and I was so surprised. I just about fell off my cushion because it was the same. And today, once more, I feel the pleasure, the pleasantness. I feel when you talk about your skin underneath the clothes and your skin outside of the clothes feeling different. That was very, very pleasant. I loved it. And thank you, Sylvia. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you. I like to have a little feedback now. So we'll have Nancy and then we'll have Maxine. But go, Nancy. Hi. So I noticed uh, the air conditioning, um, that kind of soft um fuzzy hum and um a kind of um tickle with a, a slight pain tickle in my ear and um i also noticed um you know how thankful i was feeling towards you for being here and um and other um body sensations um painishes in my back um in my shoulders in my neck you know ten on my seat actually so yeah and as we're talking i kind of think i hear wind from outside i'm inside so thank you very much actually all of us watching your palm blowing and waves going people sure she feels <laughs> but you're not actually there I know I can get into that sometimes if I'm if I'm looking at it because I love that kind of. So in the same, I think there's two elements. There are certain sounds that we associate with pleasant feelings, like being at a seashore in the tropics or whatever. But uh, the sense of being present in the moment is really through this visceral, corporeal body. Is I think. The, the primary sense of being present, not distracted. We really are here. Really are here. We're going to hear Maxime and Tia and Claudia. No more raising hands right now. <laughs> Do something else afterwards. But this is the best. Maxime, we haven't met before, have we? No, no. It's my first time tuning into Spirit Rock uh, anything. Um, I'm in East Bay, California, Castro Valley. So I'm not too far. No. 
Um, so yeah, I think I'm going through a bit of a hard time right now and just trying to reconnect a bit with meditation. And I, I think what I noticed during that, that short sit is um, kind of the, the lightness of the task and how easy it is and just natural it felt to just tune into my senses and be in the moment. And, you know, I don't have to try to hear the things around me. I'm going to hear them no matter what. And I think um, when you were talking about um, how which with each breath we're going through change, um, I could really feel that. Thank you very, very much. I've, 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 uh, really, you've said several very important things. The end one that you said is when we're paying attention, what we see is change happening. I've started to say that really in the last few months or weeks, maybe, where I I was in the habit, not thinking enough, of saying we see something and then it changes and then there's something else and then it changes. I think what we see is change happening. And what we're meant to really viscerally know, that that's what's happening moment to moment. Change is happening. It is our experience. And the question that we often think about, like you say, I'm going through a bit of a hard time right now. Uh, you know, I certainly understand what that means in English. But I think that in the in the thing of right now, I'm having a hard time, is the, the clue about right the next minute might be something else and there'll be something else. And to be held hostage in this moment of gathering one's attention by what might be, it might be this, it might be that. And who knows, you know, doesn't mean all the things that don't you plan and don't you, of course you do, but to live in the moment and to know, we don't know what's going to be. My friend Gil, who I quote or quote all, quote all the time, my friend Gil Fronsdahl, it likes to say that the definition of equanimity is to be able to say, uh, this is what's happening now. Let's see what happens next. And not live in the worry about what if and what if and what if. Let's see what happens next. That makes room for what next to arrive. Okay, we'll come back to that. Thank you very much. I'm glad you're here. Oh, uh, Claudia. Yes, thank you. Um, well, I had a very interesting experience while we were just meditating on sound because we've just moved to Vermont, a pretty, well, for me, a rural area because I came here from the middle of New York City and the Upper East Side of Manhattan. And the sounds are so different. Um, I would meditate in my bedroom and hear sirens and alarms and mostly cars honking at each other. And here it's birds and, and, uh, the breeze in, in the trees. And, um, halfway through that experience, I realized either way you're present. No, no matter what, um, kind of sounds you're hearing, uh, you're present. And, and as you say, <laughs> everything is always changing. Everything is always becoming other. And, uh, so I was very much aware that although they were completely different sounds, either way, I'm just present. Either way, you're just present. I'm so glad you said that because as you were saying it, I thought, well, uh, uh, I've had that same experience and, uh, being in New York City and, and with the constant sound of sirens and police cars and fire engines. And, uh, they certainly catch the attention. And, uh, I was realizing as you were speaking that one of the things 
that happens after that is I think, uh-oh, somebody's in trouble. And I think about that. And I, as you were speaking, I had the thought, I could also think, oh, good, somebody's responding to trouble and going to fix it up. Look at that. They, New York has got 8 million people there, and they're taking care of them all. That's amazing. And really, it depends on how my mind is tilted to say, wow, what a thing. And that takes practice, doesn't it? Well, it, I, I am learning. I'm still learning. <laughs> No, I really am still learning. I want to talk about that later, Tia, and then we'll talk again. Tia? Um, yeah, I just, um, I I loved beginning that with that arriving meditation, as you called it, which felt a little bit longer than the typical, let's just sit for a few minutes before diving in. And it was just an ideal way to really feel the present moment starting with the sounds, then the body, those two things together, I think was just a perfect way to spend a little more time feeling and getting into and realizing what is the present moment before moving on. So I I liked, I liked that technique. I'm very glad. And really, I wanted to start today with, uh, oh, I have several things I want to talk about. One of them, well, I'll, 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 I'll read you this poem that um, is most hooked into what we were just saying. I've, I've come across this poem twice in the last couple of weeks, and I'm very taken with it. It has to do with, well, you'll see what it has to do with. But, you know, sometimes uh, the same sound of uh, sirens running and you realize, oh, someone's having a bad day, or if your mind is in the right way, to also think, oh, good, someone's on the way to help out right now. And that the mind would excuse one way or the other way, boys up your heart. And the other one is it's reminding you of, uh oh, there are a lot of problems about being alive. And I was thinking recently about that the awareness of where you are when things happen has to do with why things happen. I don't use the word karma because it actually means in a a proper meaning of the sense, it means things happen because other things happen, but not in some, uh uh-oh, because in some other life or serves you right, it's a payback. I think karma means things lead to other things. And you really don't know what what all, all the factors are in anything that's arising. And uh, I had uh, um, reason recently to read for the first time the poem by, um, it's hard to say her name, Vishlava Zimborska. How many people have heard that poet, name of that poem or seen the name of that poem? She's a uh, Polish poet, a contemporary, elderly Polish poet. And it's called Could Have. So you could look that up. And Carlita's put it online, so she'll put it up for you to download or whatever when you get a chance. But just listen to it right now. And apropos of, did you ever pass by a um, um, a big accident on the freeway and there are cars piled up or uh, all of a sudden they're saying on the radio there's been a three-car accident, take this side, take that side. It's uh, actually my 
ongoing thought that I am going to call the radio stations and volunteer to have another way to say uh, something when they say there's a three-car accident on Highway 12. So you're best served if you take uh, the Highway 4 exit that's coming up and go around it because it's going to be a little tied up for a number of hours with uh, emergency vehicles. I wish they would say, alas, there's been a three-car accident or may the people in the three-car accident get home eventually. Not just how you can get home more immediately by taking another highway, but I don't think that's going to cut it with the radio stations, so I don't do it. But did you ever go past that and think, wow, if I'd been five minutes earlier or um, if I had started out when I thought and not dallied around, I could be in, I could have been in that accident. Here's a poem called Could Have. It could have happened. It had to happen. It happened earlier, later, nearer, farther off. It happened, but not to you. You were saved because you were the first. You were saved because you were the last. Alone with others on the right, on the left. Because it was raining. Because of the shade. Because the day was sunny. You were in luck. There was a forest. You were in luck. There were no trees. You were in luck. A rake, a hook, a beam, a break, a jam, a turn, a quarter inch, an instant. So, you're here. Still dizzy from another dodge. Close shave, reprieve. One hole in the net and you slip through. I couldn't be more shocked or speechless. Listen how your heart pounds inside me. I think about that. I really, for years, at that point, I would have thought of the poem Otherwise by Jane Kenyon, also in your reference material today, if you want to look it up, where it said, today is fine. Today, my partner and I are having a good day doing what we want and love and we're in health. But someday it will be otherwise. And... uh I know about uh, Jane Kenyon. I know about her poetry. And I know that it's already otherwise in her relationship. That she herself died. So you don't know. It's all otherwise. And when you think about it, the impulse to be alive in this moment. One of my teachers at one point said to me, it's your life, Sylvia. Don't miss it. And I thought, whoa. Uh you know, I, I when I tell that story, I don't have a sense of dread about it. Uh, although I felt, don't miss it, is really is really crucial to me. And I think about how much of my life I have spent worrying about what if this and what if that and what if the other. And what if the truth is that you never know? And wouldn't that really pull me to want to really... Um, notice the art of being present. I think, you know, I, there's a new book. I haven't read it yet, but I am looking into it. It's called The Art of Noticing. The first time I, I, and when I think back, I think things have happened in my life that were life changers that I noticed 
And uh, I think when I think about it, uh, if I would make a list of my own spiritual development over the years, if there's such a thing, or development into wisdom, I think there is such a thing. Uh, I think it's also the development into contentment or equanimity or poise. Poise is a better word, maybe. Um, when I was uh, when I was twenty three, my mother died, and I was living. Uh, I I was in Texas with my husband and two young babies on our way to Fort. Uh, Benning, Georgia, where he had been stationed for two years of compulsory military service because uh, he was a physician and he had been given all kinds of granted all kinds of um, uh, permission to continue schooling, but he'd finished all his schooling and now he'd been called up and we were on our way to Fort Benning, Georgia and we got a phone call early in the morning that my mother had died. And we were in Texas and she, anyway, I needed to, I, I, it was a Saturday morning and the uh, funeral was the next day. So I have no memory of how we packed up ourselves and our children and got on a flight and went to New York. I really have a very good memory and I don't remember that day at all with two babies um, and flew to New York and flew to my parents home and my father of course was there and my mother's sister had flown in from somewhere else in the country the day before and the following morning we were getting dressed my aunt and I to go to the funeral and uh, I re remember uh, I, I brought something that was um, sort of dark or a modest dress or something Anyway, I dressed myself, and Miriam and I were dressing. And I said, Miriam, uh, do people wear uh, lipstick uh, to funerals? Am I supposed to, can I put on lipstick? I mean, what do people do about makeup at funerals? And my aunt said, I don't know. She said, too bad Gladys isn't here. If Gladys was here, she would know that answer to that. And it was so bizarre. Gladys wasn't there because Gladys was dead. That's why we were all there at the funeral. It was a bizarre thing to say, too bad Gladys isn't here. It was too bad Gladys wasn't there because she was dead. That was the too bad. And it was such a bizarre thing to say, too bad Gladys isn't here. She would know what to wear at the funeral. Somehow it's the wrong thing. Anyway, I and I said that and I laughed uh, because it's such a bizarre thing. And I had a thought. I just genuinely laughed. And I was totally grief-stricken. My mother was very dear to me, and I loved her very much. But in the moment, I thought, I just laughed. That's really wild. In the middle of this first major catastrophe of my life, my mother has died. And something was funny, and I laughed. And I didn't take heart. You know, I didn't. I, I want to say it was a good thing for me. Because in that moment, I knew that somehow I'd get over it that my mind was not dead, that I I still got the bizarreness of that and the irony of that, and it tickled me. So I hope you get that story, and it doesn't sound like... <laughs> it doesn't sound like other than it was. I loved her dearly. 
But it was such a bizarre, funny thing. And in that moment, I think I thought to myself, things pass. I'm going to manage this and I'll get over this. And Or the truth is you never really get over feeling sad about that. But it doesn't affect your life a lot later. It's not the end of everything. I don't know. Did you get that story? Is that weird, that story? I don't tell it often. So at the time, I thought, okay, it'll be all right. And I didn't say anything to anybody. And my, I, that, I was 23, and now I'm 87. So it's, what, 64 years ago. But I remember that moment. And it was one moment in time, 64 years ago. But I thought to myself, I noticed that. And I, if I look back and I think, were there any other things that I noticed in my life that set me up to have a life that had some uh, particular understanding about things past, that's the way they are, life goes on. I, I always credit my grandmother, my father's mother, um, who uh, lived with us and who raised me because my both parents had jobs. I credit my grandmother with being my first Dharma teacher because I noticed, there's another thing that I noticed. Well, that's interesting. My grandmother, uh, for whom, who lived with us, for whom I was her only grandchild, and my father was her only child. So she was, you can imagine, devoted to me, and she was very kind and very solicitous and cooked special things that I liked to eat and and braided my hair when I went to school in the morning and took care of me after I came home from school and was altogether solicitous if, if anything ever hurt me. And on those occasions that I was just in a grumpy mood, which children sometimes are in a grumpy mood, I'd say to her, but I'm not happy. And she would say to me, which quite deadpan, not in a bad way, She'd say, where is it written, which is a Talmudic way of structuring a question, where is it written that you're supposed to be happy all the time? And I thought to myself, when I later on, 60 years later, when I wrote a book about Buddhism, I wrote about where is it written? Where is it guaranteed that you're supposed to be happy all the time? And I thought that she was a very steadfast woman. She'd been all she she'd been a refugee in Europe, all kinds of stories. She was not an unhappy woman. She was cheerful and laughed. And she didn't give much credence to whether or not you would ha be happy. She knew that happiness came and went. So I'm talking, I'm thinking these days about noticing. That's what I've There's a new book, and I haven't read it yet, but it's called The Art of Noticing. And uh, I asked Carlita to look it up to... Carlita, who wrote it? Did you tell me? Yes, it's by Rob Walker. But I don't know whether <laughs> I haven't read it yet. But I think it's not about having certain things happening to you. It's about having a certain understanding that you notice that you think, oh, I never got that before. I never got it before that it's not written, really, that you're supposed to be happy. You have grumpy days. For whatever, and they'll pass. It's not you have to get over the grump. It's they'll pass. And grumpy days happen. Anybody disagree with that? Grumpy days happen. <laughs> grumpy days happen. 
and like like the flu happens and food poisoning happens and you get over it and even you get a covid you get over it mostly i was thinking and was going to talk about barbie and i i asked the beginning about how many people show me again how many people all right so a lot of people didn't see barbie uh, and everybody who did queued up. Okay. I didn't plan to go, uh, which is probably why the, uh, the numbers of people who didn't go, uh, didn't go. I went because, uh, my daughter was taking her granddaughter to see Barbie and I thought, well, I'll go. And I was surprised of those people who saw Barbie. I'm going to, this is going to be a spoiler alert. I'm going to tell you something about it. So if you're planning, well, no, if you, I, I might go back and see it again. This time with a notebook. I usually go to a movie with a notebook in my lap because there's always one line that I want to write down. And I I, I'm, I sit in the movies with my notebook open so I can write it down. Of the people who saw Barbie, what do you think is the operative line? Was there an operative line in the whole thing? The chat is open if you want to write down the operative line. So this is just for the people who went, obviously. Anybody want to say? Of those people who went, put up your hand if you were surprised. Put up your hand if you liked it better than you thought you would. All right, we're going to pick out one of the men. Well, Bennett, where is that? Did hi, hi there, I'm Bennett. I thought you, you put up your hand, no? Yeah, yeah, I, I loved it. I, I thought it was great. I'm, I'm also a, a gay man, and so uh, I think I'm, I'm predisposed to being uh, ec excited about the themes in, in uh, a film like Barbie. So just, uh, just to push you on, what, what would you say is one of the themes? And by the way, welcome to Wednesdays. Oh, thank you. Um, boy. Uh, that Barbies are doing just fine and, uh, don't, don't need a lot of, uh, Ken's around to make, uh, <laughs> make, facilitate, you know, life. Yeah. Which I've, I've kind of always thought, thought that was the case. Yeah. Uh, okay. Let me tell you what I thought was the, I'll tell you and then you tell me if you also. So, uh, here is Barbie living in Barbie land. And where everything is beautiful and wonderful, because in Barbie land, everything is perfect. And there are lots of Barbies, because you know that over the last, you probably know that over the last several decades, uh, it, it started with a, a kind of a push not to have Barbie have such a uh, unattainable body figure. Bobby, Barbie was always blonde and had a figure that, a body figure that very few people have. And has feet that are permanently in a position of feet being that go into high heel shoes. So they have that uh, that kind of foot. The Barbie doesn't stand on her two feet. So there's a Barbie land and it's full of Barbies. And one of the objections years ago is that Barbie was always in a pink feminine, uh, stereotypically feminine set up and uh then under pressure they put um uh 
Dr. Barbie, Dentist Barbie, Astronaut Barbie, President Barbie, uh, Barbie in a wheelchair. They really tried to diversify the Barbies. Um, I think also they fixed up Barbie's body so she wouldn't um, be so unattainable in anybody's thoughts about what body female bodies should look like. Also, the Barbies and the Kens, who are also, that's the, the, the movie is full of diversified Barbie, Barbies and diversified Kens who also are multi-ethnic and multi... The, the Kens, by the way, I don't think I'm multi-talented, but the Barbies are. But the Kens are sort of auxiliary. And um, and neither Barbie dolls nor Ken dolls have genitalia. They Neither of them did do. And they don't have sex lives either. Uh, anyway, here is Barbie in the beginning. And everything is perfect, and the choreography is really good, and the filming is very good, and the, it's very imaginative. And I thought that it would be a, a discussion of, of the patriarchy and uh, all of that, which it is. But also, in the Barbie world, everything is perfect. And all the Barbies go to bed at night saying goodnight to all the other Barbies in the world. And say, this was the most perfect day ever, and tomorrow is going to be the most perfect day ever again. And then I can't actually remember uh, that what it is that causes Barbie's feet to suddenly go from that exaggerated. Does anybody remember? How come she gets those flat feet all of a sudden? Rochelle, what happens there that she gets the flat feet? Um, I think it's because the the... The, remember the the mother figure who worked for Motel, who was um, playing around with Barbie and started having feelings, and then the feelings were all of a sudden Barbie starts having feelings. She she's thinking of death, and she's she no longer is having a perfect day. It's because her creator is having those feelings. I missed that. That, that I I didn't miss it. I forgot it. That she throws a Barbie in a garbage heap. Uh, yeah, yeah, and she's and it wasn't the daughter; it was actually the mother who was um, was having. I don't know why she was having those feelings, but of course, we all go through um, phases in our life, and um, maybe because she was going to be losing her daughter soon, you know, and and she'd lost the fantasy. That she lost the fantasy, and the Barbie gets flat feet. Yes, and, and in the Barbie world, that's a catastrophe, and she goes to see a guru, Barbie. <laughs> and uh, the Guru Barbie says there's a there's a rip in the in the veil between Barbie Land and the real world, and you have to get you have to go there and fix that, repair that rip in the world, so that the Barbies can stay in Barbie Land and uh, everybody else not. And it's very ingeniously plotted out, and and but in that particular oh. The thing that starts it is she says at some point to all the Barbies, and by the way, does anybody here ever think about dying? That's what makes the, I think, the, the feet go flat. Is that it, Anna? There's a, but at some point she says, anybody here ever think about dying? And it's like, <gasps> everybody says that all of a sudden. And from there on, the fantasy is lost. It, it isn't every day perfect in Barbie land, and it doesn't go on forever and ever perfect. 
and the idea that they lived happily ever after, which ends all the fairy tales that that I read, which are you know, which are mostly those that are derived from um, Grimm's, or they usually have a worse ending than they lived happily ever after. But we have they lived happily ever after, and she's saying they don't. Do you ever think about dying, and all of a sudden? And I thought, and she asks a a a, a, a guru type Barbie, weird Barbie. What about this? Did you ever think about dying? And uh, the weird Barbie tells her that's kind of a guru Barbie says everything passes, and she says, and Barbie says this is the line: says everything passes. That's terrifying. And that I thought was the line and the whole thing. Everything passes. That's terrifying. The last lines that the Buddha is said to have spoken in his life are everything that arises passes away. In another form, it's translated as transient are all constructed things. She said, everything passes. That's terrifying. And I think that that's the beginning of the awareness of vulnerability. It's the beginning of the awareness of whatever it is, it isn't going to last. When the Buddha taught the Four Noble Truths and he said everything is suffering, doesn't mean every moment is painful. It means that nothing's going to last. If this moment is fantastic, it's going to pass right away. If this moment is horrible, it's going to pass right away. It's uh, whatever it is, it's going to pass right away. Everything changes. And depending on uh, how you understand that, you can say, well, isn't it amazing? Everything changes. This whole complex world that began with a big bang 15 billion, billion something years ago. Uh, is unfolding and look what's happened we've had ice ages and and uh, all kinds of you know destructions of civilizations civilizations have risen and fallen and risen and fallen and here we are now and who knows what's next but who really who knows but something else will be next and whether and of course we're talking in terms of cosmic time not necessarily tomorrow but maybe tomorrow you never know uh what what the cosmic end of the planet is not going to be tomorrow but the planet as i know it or the my family as i know it or my sense of well-being as i know it is it could have been otherwise it's and i was when i i read you that poem um from zimborska said i couldn't be more shocked was speechless. Means we got through yesterday by crossing all the streets that we crossed without being run over. And no earthquake happened right under me yesterday, nor did I suddenly get a dreadful, painful disease, nor did anybody else that I know yesterday get diagnosed with something. But they could at any moment. It's very fragile, the comfort of the moment. And that really is what the Buddha taught. The, 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 the quintessential story of the Buddha's going forth 
it's a fairy tale. I mean, it's a it's a made up story. Most people don't take it as literal that he was a prince who never knew that things changed and lived in a protected environment and went out one day uh, in a disguise from his protected castle and saw what would come to know as the four sights of an old person and a sick person and a dead person in various stages of desperate living and then being dead. And um, the fourth sight was a monk walking through this terrain of old age, sickness, and death, and seeing, being, seeming to have a kind of serenity of visage. And the story is told to give the clue that if you, um, if you really want to see what's true, that um, everything that arises passes away in this world, you need to take up the, the path of the contemplative, the path of the monk, and uh, most people do not think that that actually happened, that it's a metaphor, I think. I mean, I I assume it's a metaphor. I assume it's a metaphor, the story of the Buddha sitting under the uh, tree when he sits down and says, I'm not going to get up until I'm enlightened, and puts his fingers on the ground. And uh, in response to the forces of greed, hatred, and delusion, flying by in the sky with uh uh in the pictures of it in the depictions of it there uh the the forces of uh greed and the fortress for the forces of hatred and the force the forces of confusion are attacking him which is a metaphorical way you see them in in children's buddhist children's coloring books as coming on horseback with spears and arrows and uh all kinds of uh, erotic kinds of lures. And here's the Buddha sitting serene of visage and not moving. And he puts his fingers down on his gr- on the ground next to him and he says, I see you, Mara, and I am not afraid. I have a right to be here. I love that, actually. And I interpret that as meaning, if I can put my life in a place where I see it's true, about I could get really tied up in worrying about death and dying, and I could get tied up in, uh, I don't know, responding to all kinds of uh, eating the wrong things or drinking the right the wrong things or things that wouldn't be good for my body but might feel good in the moment, that I could be diverted from keeping my mind clear and filled with understanding which would mean that my mind is clear and I would know that this business of getting born and living and dying is hard for everybody. And my heart would be open with compassion for all beings in the world. And I would be fulfilled in my sense of peace in every moment because I'd be connected meaningfully and with loving intention to all the beings in the world. Does that make sense? Or is that you know, because I didn't write it down, obviously, <laughs> but it's my firmest belief that if we looked around and we knew that everybody's got the same life, you don't know. You never know by how much distance you miss that that avalanche, by how much distance you missed that um, tree falling over, by how much distance you missed that middle piece 
I always have the same image in my mind of the middle piece in the San Francisco Bay Bridge that fell out during the earthquake in 1989. One section of the bridge fell out and there was one car on it. And what are the chances that you were the last car on the chances before on the car before or the first car on the car after that died? What are those chances that what were the chances that you were the person who drowned? You don't know. Um I you know, I don't think there's any cosmic plan that that should be the person who falls in. But there are all that's why I read you that poem by um Zimborska. You don't know where you are. Five minutes of all of us who got up this morning were significantly distant from every accident that happened near to you. You just weren't there. And it could always be different. It's tenuous to be alive. That line where Barbie looks shocked, she said, everything passes. That's terrifying. It is. Unless you know that that's just the way it is. It's not terrifying. It's it's the dukkha of experience. I don't know how many, I don't know if James would like, well, I've told it enough stories, time about my friend James Barris is known for saying uh, about life being full of different kinds of uh, challenges that we are constantly going through. And as long as we're still here, managing The story is told about him that when his son Adam was born, uh, that uh, somebody was present in their household. James was there and Jane was there and Adam was a baby and they're all sitting together and it's perfect and the baby is sleeping and they were holding him. And James is said to have said about to Adam, from here on, kid, it's downhill all the way or it's uphill all the way. I can't remember. But it's like fraught from here, from forever, which doesn't sound like the most lovely thing to say just when you've had a baby that you've wanted so much. But that's that's the meaning of the Barbie. From here on, it's we want things and sometimes we get them and sometimes we don't. And sometimes we don't get them, but then we do or we do get them and they don't last. And our health is okay until it isn't. And it's always surprising when it isn't, because it just was. And you don't know when it's going to be. Not. You don't know. I just, it came into my mind, uh, when my father was diagnosed with the kind of um, rare cancer that he actually died of, I went with him, uh, this was 50 years ago now, I think, 40 years ago. I went with him to see a specialist in that rare particular cancer in San Francisco. And I live just north of San Francisco, so we make a special trip. Then we go to see this doctor who said to him in quite an unpleasant way, I, I think he was in in the the, the era of, telling people, frankly, what they've got. 
I think you should tell people what they've done. But I don't think you should say to them, well, you've got about two years to live. And he said a whole lot of other things. And as we were leaving, my father said, I didn't like him. I said, I didn't like him either. He said, I didn't like him because how does he know I've got two years to live? Maybe when I'm going to cross the street now, I'm going to get run over by a muni bus. He doesn't know. Anyway, the end of that story is my father lived seven years. <laughs> he didn't get run over. He died of his disease, not of the muni bus, but seven years later. And I noticed that it makes a difference what you say to somebody. It, it has consequences. Anyway. I wanted to talk about that particular first noble truth that, uh, that, that and really the, the word that Barbie uses is it's terrifying to know that everything that is dear to us might not be here tomorrow. You don't know. And why, and why I think actually that that's the most important thing to know. The first, the first noble truth of the four noble truths is that life is dukkha. And the dukkha, and, and you know, when we think about it, we say, well, none of us, nobody that you see on the screen is living in a state of anguished living. Everybody is sitting in a house somewhere. They have, they have, um, they're not unhoused. Nobody of us is impoverished. We all have time on a Wednesday morning to be together and talk to each other. We all have different health. But we're all here and we're all alive. And we don't know when we won't be. But I think the great, that the dukkha that the Buddha is talking about is that we don't know when it'll be otherwise. We don't know when it'll be otherwise. And it will so, certainly be otherwise for all of us at some point. And it's otherwise for everybody at some point. And my own sense is that the knowledge of that has people lower their voices. Um, metaphorically speaking, lower their voices. I think a lot about the level of incivility in uh, the news these days. It's become all right to tell lies. It's become, become all right or acceptable in some quarters. To vilify, to tell outright lies about people, to vilify, to call people names. And I don't know how that happened. I don't think, I mean, I don't think that there was no villainy when I was growing up. It wasn't so part of the acceptable zeitgeist. Uh, you know, there were things that people didn't say uh, or that other people didn't find funny. It's a very strange thing. I think that the, uh, that's not, I think it's not disconnected from the fact that um, the level of people on, um, Antidepressants is getting higher and higher. That people are on waiting lists to see therapists that are longer, waiting lists that are longer and longer. I think it has to do with the fact that it's become all right to frighten people publicly 
and vilify people publicly. And but that's off off the point of my own sense from my own experience. Maybe this is a metaphor that makes the point. Whenever I go to visit someone in a hospital, and especially if they're um, if they're there because well nobody's in a hospital except if you're having a baby and then you're in and out before you can have a visitor practically. So, but if you're going to visit someone who's in the hospital, you when you walk in, you lower your voice. You don't walk down the halls shouting, uh, and you don't. You know, you, you modify yourself because everybody there is dealing with life and death as if it happens. And it happens all over the place. And the, and it, it's not even life of the body. It's the life of the mind, life of the heart. It's so easy to be in pain because of loss. And it, I wish I had put up in the... Um, in the resources for today, but as I say, I wish I'm sure that let's just see. I'm sure that Carlita is doing it already. There's a uh, poem called uh, Wait a minute, what's it called? Not gratitude. Wait, uh, Naomi she had nine called what's the name of that poem kindness. Kindness. kindness there you go thank you that's one of my favorites it is one of my favorites so if you put it up Carlita for those people who haven't read it recently I'll read the poem there we go kindness There it is. Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. Feel the future dissolve in a moment like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you ride and ride, thinking the bus will never stop. The passengers eating maize and chicken will stare will stare out the window forever before you learn the tender gravity of kindness you must travel where the indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road you must see how this could be you how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and simple breath that kept him alive before you know the deepest thing you must know sorrow as the deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore. Only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to gaze. Wait a minute. There's something a matter. There you go. Only kindness. That makes sense anymore. Only kindness that ties your shoes 
and sends you out into the day to buy bread. There's a there's a wrong word in that. It's not that. Um, only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, it is I you have been looking for, and then goes with you everywhere like a shadow or a friend. There's a there's a, a wrong line in that it's only kindness that sends you out to, I think it says something like, um, to buy bread and mail letters, something like that, but not gaze at bread. That's a mistake. Anyway, how many people have seen that poem before? Oh, then I'm glad I put it up because a lot of people didn't. And for years, it was the only poem that I was showing to people. Okay. So what I'd like to do now, I was going to say that thing about everything passes that, that Barbie said, that's terrifying. It's the same as the first noble truth. The second noble truth is things have pain and difficulty arise and we make them worse if we have an imperative that things be otherwise. We can't, we can work towards things changing, but we cannot change the moment being what it is. And to the degree that we push it away, we create confusion in our own mind and an inability to touch our own compassion. That's the best sentence I said now in an hour and a half. <laughs> and I said it, so I don't even know what it was. <laughs> but you can, <laughs> Carlita will know. <laughs> or Carlita will look it up or something. But that was the best sentence I said in an hour and a half. The third noble truth is we could, we could, um, habituate our minds to kindness. And I think that this whole practice that we're doing of being attentive, that's why I think that maybe if we called it noticing, like I, what, what's your spiritual practice? My spiritual practice is noticing. I noticed that in the middle of being my mind filled with tragedy that I laughed. And I knew from that that my whole life would not be as bleak as that moment was. In a moment, I knew something else. In the moment that my grandmother said to me, it's not written anywhere that you're supposed to be happy all the time, I noticed that she said that. And I noticed that that was going to be, I'd need to know that sometime. Once upon a time, I was leaving. Uh, a man had come to my uh, yoga class for older adults when I was 40, I suppose. That's not very older. And uh, he was much older and on the kind of half crutches that you use when you can't walk. Um, Yitzhak Perlman crutches. And he stayed for the class. And when I went to talk to him at the end of the class, he said to me, thank you very much for the class. You're a very good teacher. Um, and I won't come back again. It's too hard for me. So I said, you know, thank you very much for having come. And he was leaving and he turned around to me at the doorway and he said, I just wanted you to know that I was a member of the 1904 United States Olympic rowing team. And then he went out of the room. And I thought to myself, 
the same as my grandmother said, and the same as my Aunt Miriam and I laughed. I noticed that he told me that that's a line I need to remember. And I rem I don't know whose name was, he never came again. But I thought that was the instruction to remember moments of really sufficiency in life, moments where I felt this is a really super moment to be alive. So that when it's more difficult for me to be alive, I'll remember that there were super moments. One of my teachers once said, make a bank deposit in your, in the savings bank of your mind of moments that you really are grateful to have had in your life. You might try to do that. Make a list of movies you might pray, play in your mind. And notwithstanding, it's not very Buddhist to say, make a list and store it in your mind. I think that those lists become the wallpaper of your mind and they stay the wallpaper of your mind until the end of your life and that they're valuable. They don't continue because you're not young and vital and you're not rowing on the rowing team or doing, I'm not doing anything, everything hardly that I used to be able to do. But when I did, I enjoyed it. I think that's what it means, the third noble truth, that we could condition our minds to respond with kindness and compassion to everything that happens to us and to everything else so that we can see it clearly for what it is and not be happy about it, but see it clearly and respond with compassion because that's what we want to do. The fourth noble truth is, of course, to practice all the different ways that we do to keep our mind that kind of malleable, pliable, poised, and wise. To know that there's a response that doesn't create suffering. That's a better sentence that I've said in a long time. I don't ever do a whole talk on the on the Eightfold Path, which is the fourth noble truth, because I think to myself it's pretty boring to people. They've heard Eightfold Paths, retreat, uh, talk so many times. It's not boring. It's how to get it right so that you don't suffer so much. I just understood that better. But the first noble truth is really Barbie's understanding. Everything passes. That's terrifying. You can't hold on to you can't hold on to anything that's a source of pleasure. The only thing that remains the enduring source of pleasure is compassion, where your point of personal point of view changes to really thinking on behalf of all beings and to really notice that we are living as part of all beings. Everything changes, us and everything else. Almost. Time to sit. I said way too much, and I really want to have you talk a little bit. But let's sit. Let's sit for 15 minutes.
If the goal of practice is to have a poised mind, moment to moment, sit down, close our eyes. Okay, I'm with what I hear, I'm with what I feel, what I what thoughts come up, what moods come up, what experiences come up. What we'd like to be able to do, which really has fully cognizant of the fact that what comes up moment to moment is changing moment to moment, pleasant, unpleasant, very unpleasant, not so pleasant, falling asleep, not so pleasant, waking up, feeling the body maybe more pleasant. That the really the only response is to meet it with poise and with attention. And the best trans a best technique for meditation for doing that is to meet every moment as a friend. So we'll sit for fifteen minutes and I'll invite you to say to yourself in your mind, May I meet this moment fully? May I meet it as a friend? May I meet this moment fully? May I meet it as a friend? You can, if you want, find yourself sitting and comfortable and listening and present. And then say to yourself, may I meet this moment fully? May I meet it as a friend?
probably won't ring the bell, having just made a big speech about ringing it. When you're ready, open your eyes. When you look around and you see different people in their homes, think a thought about, especially look for the people you don't know. Find somebody you don't know and wish them a wish. May you be well or may things be going well with you. There are people on the second page as well. May all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.